But good morning, fellowship, and happy Father's Day. It's good to be with you this morning. Hey, if you're new or you're visiting this morning to Fellowship, we're so glad that you're with us. Um, We just want to say welcome. And at Fellowship, uh, we really want to live out what Jesus called his followers to live out, and that is to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, or immersing them in their new identity and teaching them to obey all that he commanded us, or teaching them to live into the kingdom of God, which is what he commanded us to do, uh, the good life. And so we know in a church like this, there are all kinds of people um, that need to be produced and released. That's our language around here for the Great Commission, to produce and release spiritual leaders who know and express the authentic Christ to Northwest Arkansas and the world. And we know that in a church like this, we have all kinds of people that need to be produced and released to authentically express the authentic Christ in unique ways, in all kinds of ways. And one of those ways and one of those types of people is artists. And so uh, over the last several years, we've had songwriters, um, graphic designers, videographers, musicians, audio engineers, all of these people um, working really hard and growing in their expression of Christ um, or their worship, if you will, um, through a ministry called Fellowship Worship, which is a cross-congregational worship ministry here at Fellowship. And Fellowship Worship is coming out with some new music. Well, we're excited about it anyway. Um, So the whole idea of this is to put the words of the gospel message on the lips of God's people to form us, to inspire us, to participate in the kingdom life. And so that's the heart behind this. And uh, we have this, this new release is called Found in You, and, and it's three songs that you know because we've been singing them here. And after services, some of us get you, have you coming up to us going, hey, I, I, I've been looking for that song or I'll get a message during the middle of the week. Hey, these lyrics, what song is this? I can't find it. We well, can't find it because it's original music that's been written by songwriters here at the church with you in mind and, uh, and our worship in mind. And so now we're going to put those out for you guys so that you can listen uh, and have them with you. And so we're doing it in two different ways. So each of the three songs have two different versions. One is an acoustic version that we're calling the stage version, which we recorded in a creative video format, which you saw a little bit of just a minute ago. And uh, those are all out on our YouTube channel. So please go and check that out. And um, enjoy the videos, subscribe to the channel, like, comment, share, all of those things. And here's the reason why. One, to edify you. And two, to get it out to Northwest Arkansas and the world so it can edify the church even beyond these walls. And so then we also have a studio version of each song that's going to be releasing in about two weeks. And you really want to get that because a couple of the guys up here are... uh, are on those versions, and they're leading. So it's people from, it's worship leaders from your congregation that are participating as well. So there's all kinds of things I would love to tell you about this ministry, about this project in particular. Um, But let me just end by saying this. Again, the heart behind all of this is to, one, give artists within our body um, their place in the body to invite them to step in and use their gifts to glorify God and to encourage others, to love God and love others with their gifts. And so that's one. And two, to put the truth of the gospel in your lips or in your mouth, on your lips, in your mind as you're driving and listening to music, that it might form us. It might form us into the image of Christ Uh, and might encourage us to live in his kingdom. And so uh, to that end, we're going to worship this morning. And so let me pray for our time, and we'll, we'll jump into the rest of our service together. Father, thank you for uh, the gift of the body of Christ and all of the different people 
that make it up, all the different kinds of people, all the different gifts that are brought. And thank you for artists. Thank you for music. Thank you for how it just shapes us um, in so many ways. God, it connects so many things. It connects our mind, the truths that we're singing. It connects to our body, uh, to our will as we give voice to these truths. Um, God, the beauty of the music connects to our emotions, which is a part of our whole being. God, you want our whole life to be lived in worship, and the gift of music really helps. And so thank you for that. And I pray that you would use it powerfully in our time together this morning. Jesus, we love you. We want to see you lifted high. God, would you change us? into your image just a little bit more in our time together this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, church. My name is Ryan Burton. I'm a worship pastor here at Fellowship Fayetteville. And as the offering plates are being passed, I wanted to share with you all a story. And it begins with birth of my youngest daughter now, June Taylor Burton. She was born one month ago, and so um, we are super blessed. That's her and her big sister, Hattie, there, who's obsessed with her. We are also pretty smitten. We wish she would let us sleep a little bit more in the night, but apart from that, she's, she's pretty great. Um, but the delivery of June did not really go as we had originally planned. Um, about a month and a half before June was born, uh, we, we found out that my wife, Chelsea, has a congenital heart disorder that we were unaware of, um, that she's had her entire life, um, that we just found out about. And it's a, it's a hole in her heart that needs corrective surgery, and so um, that will likely happen later this year. We were also informed when we found that out that um, the doctors were recommending C-section for delivery, and so... Two major surgeries in, uh, in about a five-minute time span of us learning about um, this thing. And so uh, it was really scary uh, for both of us, for our families, to, to, learn, about, to learn about this. And so, um, but all went well over the next month and a half, and we end up in uh, going to the hospital because she goes into labor, and uh, we find out, hey, we're going to go ahead and do the C-section tonight. And so we're excited, scared, nervous, about to meet our new daughter. And they wheel Chelsea back to the operating room. And they give me some scrubs. I get all scrubbed out. And they sit me on a bench in the hallway for about 20 or 30 minutes by myself while she gets prepped for surgery. And it's like not, it's like 1030 at night. And so it's just dead in the hospital. And I'm by myself freaking out. It was the first time, really, since we found out about the surgeries we're going to have to have, that Chelsea was going to have to have, that, um, that I really felt the weight of the fear that I had been carrying that I didn't really articulate to anyone. And so as I was sitting on that bench, scared to death, I just started praying, like, God, you got you to gotta give me something. I'm terrified. And so I, I grab my phone and I open up my Bible app, and I just go to Psalms, and it's the 16th of the month. Um, June was born on uh, May 16th, and so I just, I go to Psalm 16, and I just start reading, and immediately I'm encouraged by the words of David, and specifically when I get to verse 8. Verse 8 says, I keep my eyes on the Lord, with him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. I needed that, to think that the, the God of the universe, Yahweh, was at my right side. Why should I be shaken? He's in control. And it's through his son, Jesus, that we have obtained salvation. And that is what we can rest in. And so that became my prayer. God, let me rest in the atoning works of Christ. May that be enough. May that be enough to comfort me. And in that moment, I found peace. He blessed me with that. And I won't be peaceful forever. Um, and I'm sure I'll get really nervous again before the next surgery. But I'm gonna continue to pray that. I'm continue to be reminded of Psalm 16:8 That I will not be shaken because Yahweh is at my right side. 
And so in light of that, may we stand this morning and let's worship together. Let's turn our eyes upon Jesus. Therefore, 
since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God.
rest in your works and salvation we have through you and through your love. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Hey, Fellowship family. On behalf of our elders and staff, I want to express gratitude to all of you for your patience and encouragement during the pandemic. It was an unprecedented time for all of us. And though the disease is still with us, it seems we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. As the elders made difficult decisions on behalf of our church, seeking the leadership of the Holy Spirit, they guided us well through the process and kept both you and our staff safe. And speaking of our staff, they have done a phenomenal job providing live stream content for adults, students, and children. And now they're working hard to open services again to try and get us back to a sense of normal. But a friend reminded me this week as I mentioned the word normal, that normal is a setting on your clothes dryer. And he's right. I'm not sure normal should be our goal. God wants more for us than that. However, we are back to in-person services and we want you to be back. Live streaming of services will continue to be a convenience for us when we are traveling or aren't feeling well, but it isn't the best option nor what God intended for the body of Christ on a regular basis. We need to be together, worshiping, praying, studying God's word weekly, both in community and in corporate worship celebrations. I was out of town recently over a weekend and it was great to be able to attend fellowship services virtually. But doing so will never replace the community, collaboration, and culture of worshiping together as a body. We also need volunteers to work in our children's ministries. Get in there and invest your lives in our kids. We shouldn't have to close classes because we don't have enough workers. Our church finances took a hit as well during COVID. And I hope each of us this week will examine our giving to God through fellowship to help us accomplish God's vision and mission for our church. We need to catch up to where we were this time last year or maybe even exceed it. Remember, we can't outgive God who has given so generously to us. One last thing. It seems our nation has never been more divided and certainly never more so in so many different directions. Fellowship Bible Church should be a lighthouse of hope and unity in our community and in our world. We are bound by a common purpose based on the truth of Scripture and we will never waver from that foundation. When everything seems chaotic, let us be rock steady because we know our God is in control, come what may. He is able to do abundantly more than we could ever ask or imagine. So let's keep our eyes fixed on Him. Let's love well and let people see Christ in us. God bless. Good morning. Happy Father's Thank you. Thank you. Happy Father's Day, everybody. I like this guy. I like this side of the room today. You're alive over here for me. Side struggling a little bit. We'll get there. Um, so I had the privilege also of teaching on Mother's Day. I'm Garland, by the way, one of the pastors here, and I got the, the privilege of teaching uh, on Mother's Day. And on Mother's Day, if you were here, if you recall, um, we had a standalone sermon on true beauty for you moms. And uh, on Father's Day, we're right in the middle of our Hebrew study, and what you're getting on Father's Day is a deep dive into the book of Leviticus and animal sacrifices. Congratulations, Dad. You've earned it. Now get out there and do better, all you dads. All right. Um, so I was going to have a big kind of you know, funny story or something at the beginning here to get you going and get you connected. But one, we don't have enough time. We've got to move quick today. We've got a lot of ground to cover. And two, I couldn't think of anything funny with animal sacrifice. So with that in mind, we're going to get down to it. So when I look out kind of at the culture, both our world now, people that I talk to, things that I read, when I look and watch things from across culture, from not only now, but even uh, in past cultures, and looking at uh, history and things that have happened in the past, it seems like there is this universal longing, this universal desire that I see in almost every single human being to connect to something bigger than us to connect to the divine or to connect to something transcendent or uh, to connect to the, the gods or God or a force or karma or the spiritual or whatever you want to call it, the big meaning out there. 
It's easy to spot in ancient cultures. We can see it all over the place in ancient cultures, and we see it especially in religious cultures and religious settings. Almost every religion in the world is giving some kind of idea of how you can access the divine or access the spiritual or access the transcendent. We have different ways and rituals and formulations of how we do that, but they're trying to get people to that universal longing of touching the divine. And it's not just in the religious space that we see this either. In the secular space, we also see this longing to connect to something transcendent, something bigger than ourselves. Go back to the 60s and the psychedelic movement. Now, I, I guarantee you, none of you thought we would ever quote Timothy Leary in church. If you don't know who that is, Google him. Um, but here's what he says, and I think he's capturing this desire back in the 60s. You can see it in the, in the quote even. He says, the psychedelic experience is a journey to new realms of consciousness. The scope and content of the experience is limitless. Its characteristic features are the transcendence of verbal concepts, of space-time dimensions, and of the ego or the identity. And I think it's behind, if you, look, if you look out in our world right now, go to any checkout counter at any grocery store, or just, just look and listen to what you see kind of on the TV shows or on TV. There's this desire to connect to the spiritual. I just typed connect to the spiritual, and you should have seen how many articles and how many tens of millions of hits are on there. Just the top one I clicked on, and here's your eight ways to connect to the spiritual side today. Just walk through the checkout line and you'll see it. Connecting to your inner self, connecting to the spiritual. We have this longing for something bigger than us. I think it explains why uh, these charismatic leaders can so easily pull people into weirdness. Remember this middle one in the 90s? That was just odd. What was the hail bop comment? Uh, we, have, we have it today in the form of Oprah's guru, Eckhart Tolle, who's teaching you how to connect to the oneness of the universe and kind of transcend uh, the, the everyday reality by connecting deeper. This desire is there. We really see it in our country when we experience tragedy. Like if you think about it, America, which by and large lives as a very secular nation, when tragedy hits, natural disasters or shootings or these kinds of things, we immediately become very spiritual people. We start asking for thoughts and feelings and prayers to be sent. We start asking for justice to be done. We want, we want there to be meaning in it. There to be something good on the other side of this, some bigger purpose for this tragedy. It seems, as I kind of look out at humanity, myself included, there's this, this, there's this longing to reach out and touch the divine. And yet, it seems like we're always just a little bit short like we're always reach out but can't quite grasp it. Like whatever that thing is, God or gods or the force or whatever that thing is out there, it seems like we're a little bit disconnected from it. Something's off in us and in our world. It's interesting. The Bible is gonna drop us right in the middle of that longing. Like the Bible is gonna set up that longing all the way back at the very first two pages of your Bible. It's gonna tell this kind of a narrative, hear it, it's familiar to some of us, but if it's not, hear it. The Bible creates this story of a, of a God. We, his name is Yahweh. He's the creator covenant God of the people of Israel. He's create, he creates this universe for his glory that it would manifest his awesomeness and beauty and wonder. But then he does this very unique thing at the very end of the first chapter. He invites humanity to come and experience his abiding presence. That's what chapter two in the garden is all about. He invites humanity into sacred space to enjoy his presence there. That's what it's talking about when God rested. It's not that he's tired. It's that he comes to dwell and abide with his people. And in chapter two of Genesis, what we see is God is uniting heaven and earth together in this place called the garden of delight. And there he wants to bless humanity so that they might experience the abundance of his provision, taste it, and then take his goodness and beauty and harmony and justice out into the rest of the world. That's the design on the first two pages of your Bible. It's cool. It's really profound. But on the third page, what we see is the story gets fractured. And this fracturing occurs when humanity, instead of looking at God and receiving the abundance from him, receiving the knowledge of wisdom, good and evil from him. Humanity said, no, 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 we want to define good and evil. We want to define wisdom. We want to define meaning and happiness on our terms. And when we did that, we fractured what God had created to, to come to sacred space and meet there. 
we have two great problems we're going to see in the story. The first is we have a sin problem. Don't freak out if you're not a churchy person in here. What that means, sin, it's this idea that instead of receiving from God, we rebelled against God and tried to define right and wrong on our own terms. We worshiped our own power. And it's led to all the competitiveness and comparing and selfishness and brokenness and corruption and injustice that we see in the world at an individual and societal level. We call that sin in the Bible. The second problem we see is that we have made filthy this beautiful world that God has created to display his glory. Our sin has stained it. Instead of bringing justice and beauty and harmony out to the rest of the world, we bring corruption and pain and disharmony out into the rest of the world. We've dirtied God's world. And one of the questions of the Bible is, what will God do? How will he respond? How can he recreate this garden of Eden, this garden of delight? If it's been fractured, what will he do to get us back? And in the Old Testament, what we're going to see is the way to get us back is through sacrifice. And the writer of the Hebrews is going to pick up on that idea and say, in Jesus, we have a better sacrifice. We're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 9 today. We're in this study of the book of Hebrews. And I'll be honest with you, Hebrews is tricky it's tricky to teach. It's tricky to read. you got to read a lot of your Old Testament. We're going to try to cover a lot of ground this morning. If you have your Bibles, open them to Hebrews chapter 9. Here's where we're going to be going this morning. He's going to set up that this old way, this old sacrificial system is going to leave us with a lack. It's going to leave us needing something better. So when we look at the better sacrifice, we're going to see our need for it. Then we're going to see the power of this better sacrifice. And lastly, the results of it. So the better sacrifice the need, the need for it, the power of it, the result of it. If you haven't turned there yet, get your Bible or your phone, whatever you got. I want your eyes on the Bible this morning. Hebrews chapter 9. While you're turning there, my bet is that uh, nobody woke up this morning. And your first thought you had was, you know, the most relevant thing for my life today is going to be talking about animal sacrifices. You know what? I want to go to church today. I sure hope they're talking about animal sacrifices. Yes, that's my favorite topic. And by the way, I'm assuming nobody did. If you did, that's what, that was your thought this morning. Our care and counseling team would love to see you. Uh, we'd love to figure out what's going on with you. We'd hear your story. We got a whole team that would love to just get and hang with you, okay? So come find us afterwards. If that was your first thought this morning, it was yes, animal sacrifices. It's gonna be awesome. Uh, but in light of that, we gotta first see our need for this better sacrifice. Let's dive in to Hebrews chapter 9. Here we go. He's been reflecting on this awesomeness, the power of the new covenant, chapter 8. And he's going to be doing, the book of Hebrews is a series of contrasts, contrasting the old with the new. And here's no different. He's been talking about the new covenant, and now he's going to unpack more about this contrast. I want you to underline in your Bible, first. Now the first, or the former covenant. He wants to connect them back to the old covenant, the old system in the Old Testament. And he directs their attention to the tabernacle. He says it had its rules and regulations for worship. And you know, it had that thing called the tabernacle that we set up back in the old days. Now he wants them to think about the tabernacle. Now what is the tabernacle? It is a wandering mobile temple. That's its purpose. The tabernacle was the Israelites way of placing sacred space where God could come and meet them there. That's why it exists. It is the meeting of heaven and earth where they can come and meet God. It's them getting access back to Yahweh. And if you've ever looked at the instructions for the tabernacle, now this is the part of your Bible that we like to skip over because it's this really long, dense part in Exodus 25 to 40. But if you look at the tabernacle instructions, all of the things in that tabernacle are meant to evoke Eden. They're supposed to evoke in your mind Garden of Eden. Think about it. In the Garden of Eden, you have a tree of life. In the tabernacle, there's a tree, a menorah that's always lit. The lights are always burning. The presence of God is back in Eden. They have the bread of the presence. They offer their lives in service. They offer incense to God. Remember when Adam and Eve are barred from the garden, there's a curtain that is placed. When they're barred from the garden, there are cherubim placed on the, to access to the garden. In the tabernacle, there's a curtain with cherubim on it, okay? All of this is meant to make you think Garden of Eden, Garden of Eden, Garden of Eden. 
So he says, let's talk about that tabernacle. And then he begins to talk about the way that sacrifices were offered in that tabernacle. He says, well, you know, we used to have the priests, right? And everything they did, they had their certain patterns and they had their certain arrangements of what they did daily. That's verse six. But then he zeroes in on one particular day in verse seven. Let's read it. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. He says, let's go talk about Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Here's the deal. I get it. I'm like you. A lot of you sitting in here, when we start reading verse 6 and verse 7, it just numbs your brain. You're just like, I, don't, I just don't get this, and it's strange, and it begins to make your brain want to turn off. And here's the bigger challenge. He's trying to connect you to a part of your Old Testament that I hesitate to go to. Here's why. My bet is a lot of you in the room have had this experience, maybe even most of you, whether you're a Jesus follower or not. At some point in your life, you said, I'm gonna read the whole Bible. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna read the Bible. That's a good thing. I need to read it. Maybe you're just interested in it. And so you sat down to read the whole Bible and you got through Genesis and you were like, got some weird stuff, but pretty cool. And the first part of Exodus is like, awesome. This is a showdown. This is cool. The, the, the tabernacle instructions, you're like, okay, don't really get it. And then my bet would be, for most of you in the room, the first time you went through this experience, what killed you, what stopped you, what derailed you was Leviticus. You got to Leviticus, and then everything shut down for you. Ancient laws about what to do with your oxen and your fabrics. And you're like, I don't get this. And that's what derailed you. Now, some of you in the room, you had a secondary experience. That was your first. Then a couple years later, you went, you know what? I'm gonna try again. I'm gonna read the whole Bible. You knew about Leviticus this time. You, you, read, a, you read an article on it, so you felt like I can read it now. I can get through Leviticus. I can make it through. You prepared yourself. You went through Genesis, and then you got to Exodus, you went, here it is, Leviticus, and you hacked your way through all of Leviticus, and you turned the page thinking, yes, and then it was Numbers. <laughs> and the first six chapters of Numbers is just so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, and you said, I'm done! Give me Philippians. I can handle that. By the way, I've had similar experiences as that, okay? So that's okay. I'm, I'm with you on that. We have to go make sense of Leviticus, or we're not going to be able to make sense of Hebrews. So... Let's look at Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus 16, for many scholars, what they think, it, not only is it the center point of the book of Leviticus, a lot of scholars think it's the climax of the book. It's the, the discourse peak of this particular book, the book of Leviticus. It's Leviticus chapter 16. It's one special day, the Day of Atonement. I have so much I want to say about this, but we have to limit myself. Uh, it's really cool. But in a nutshell, here's what happens. One day of the year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest has some very special duties. First, the high priest will separate himself for a full seven days before the Day, the day of Atonement. He, he prepares himself through prayer and fasting and rituals, and then he comes in white robes on the Day of Atonement to the tabernacle. The first thing he has to do is he sacrifices a bull for his sin and the sin of his family. By the way, that's right off the bat supposed to give us indication there's something off with this priesthood. Like there's something lacking in this priesthood. He's got to offer sacrifice for himself and for his family. And now the part of the Day of Atonement that probably most Christians are familiar is, is the famous two goats. All right, let's look at them. Uh, now, this is, I get it. Let me read it. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before Yahweh at the entrance of the tent of meeting. I, I get it. This is strange. Not, most of us don't grow up on ranches or farms now, so we don't have access to like butchering and slaughtering animals. Some of you do. Like we're very disconnected from the stuff that we eat, but at the same time recognize most of you eat meat. All right? So it's happening, just you don't see it. So this sounds weird to us, but this is a culture that's very used to seeing and slaughtering their animals. So here it is. He takes the two goats and presents them before Yahweh at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Two goats, okay? One goat is designated for Yahweh. We're gonna talk about what happens to that one. And the other goat is designated for Azazel. Now, look at your Bibles. If you have a newer Bible, my bet is that's being translated for you as scapegoat. But it probably, if it's a newer Bible, it probably has a footnote uh, that says some... Some translations are, this is hard to translate. We don't, we're not sure what's going on. Some say Azazel. Uh, if you don't have the footnote, you can come talk to me later. Don't freak out about Azazel yet, all right? We're gonna come pack it in a minute. 
There's two goats, one for Yahweh and one for Azazel. Uh, the last couple decades, scholarship has, um, I think, caught up rightly that the, the translation of scapegoat may not be the best translation. Probably there's two destinies in mind, one for Yahweh, one for Azazel here, okay? We'll talk about it more in a minute. And if you notice, these mirror our two great problems. We'll, we'll take a look at it in sex, you can see. These will mirror our two great problems, these two sacrifices. This, let's start with the second one first, the goat for Yahweh. The, the, the priest has two goats presented. He casts lots. One goes to Yahweh, one for Azazel. The goat for Yahweh, look at what it says. Verse, chapter 16, verse 15. He slaughters that goat and then takes the blood of the goat into the holy of holies and sprinkles the, the mercy seat. And then he goes and sprinkles the rest of the tabernacle. And look at verse 16. Look at what it says. This is very unusual. This is very, this is very interesting. Look at what it says, verse 16. In this way, he makes atonement for what? What needs to be atoned for? Look at what it says. For the most holy place. The tabernacle, the holy place, the sacred space needs to be cleansed. Is it, is it sinful? Did it commit sin? No, of course not. It has, it's been touched by the brokenness of humanity. Now, here's the, here's the, why we're going down this line. The goat for Yahweh is not about Yahweh who's really mad and wants to kill somebody, so he kills a lamb instead. Yahweh wants to tabernacle with his people. He wants to invite them back to meet him in sacred space, but we've dirtied his world. And so to meet us there, he cleanses it with the blood of the goat for Yahweh. It's cleansing the dirtiness that humans have brought into the sacred space. That's the goat for Yahweh. The second goat is the goat for Azazel. This is the famous, uh, as we usually call, it, usually call it the scapegoat. And here's what happens on this one. The high priest will confess the sin of the people, and then he will symbolically place that over the second goat. And then they don't slaughter this goat. The goat is, a, is a symbolically a substitute as the sin of the people are pronounced over it, and instead of slaughtering it, they drive this goat out into the wilderness, east of, of Israel and Jerusalem, out there where sin and death reigns. Why do they do this? Think about the Old Testament stories, a lot of these stories that we, we struggle to read. When the people of Israel are in rebellion and in sin, when they go out into exile, they always go out east into the wilderness. They're driven out there where sin and death reign. And this scapegoat is driven out there. That place became personified with a figure or a being whose name is Azazel, okay? That's what's going on there. They're taking sin and driving it out of the camp. So now their sin has been symbolically removed from their presence. Do you get the picture? Now we have to do all this work to make sense of what the author of the Hebrews is doing in chapter nine. But think about how cool this is. Our two great problems are finding sacrifices that can allow God to come and tabernacle with his people again. Because if God tabernacles with them, then they should go out and bless the world. But what we're gonna see is these sacrifices aren't enough. They lack. This is what the writer of the Hebrews is trying to pinpoint. They're lacking something. Year after year after year after year after year after year of doing this, it's symbolically saying, these aren't enough. We need something better. Something has to come that will be better than these sacrifices. It's like an eternal ellipses, an eternal dot, 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 every single year. Why were they lacking? Look at Hebrews 9. Look at what he says. By the way, we got to, this is very heady and theological. We're trying to put a bow on it in a minute, so stick with me. Hebrews 9, look at why they're lacking. I want you to write next to verse 7. They lack access. They're lacking access. Only the high priest can go in, and that is only once a year, and that is only for the nation of Israel, and that's only if you adopt Torah and you become an Israelite. And you're supposed to hear that and go, yeah, I thought the whole plan was God blessing the nations this is about God bringing all of humanity under his glorious grace. There's a limited access. There's a lack of access in the old covenant. And second, there's a lack of power. It has limited power. Look at this, verse nine and 10. That the gifts and sacrifices being offered, they were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. Because of sin, we are in desperate need of heart renewal the Bible's gonna say. Every one of us, we need to be remade. We need to be beautified. And this 
external sacrifice of an animal did nothing to cleanse the conscience. Now, when I start saying things like a clear conscience, a clean conscience, a guilty conscience, some of you, you walk in here, and when you think about approaching God, being close to the divine, all you can think is guilty conscience. That's what I have. And it's just overt. It's all over you. You think me before God, guilty conscience. Maybe it's something that you did a long time ago that haunts you. Maybe it's something you did last night that's haunting you when you walked in here. Maybe it's just a habit that you just carried for years or decades and you don't think you're ever going to get out of it. For some of you, though, it's not that overt. It's really kind of subtle and covert. This feeling of disconnect that we have with with other people, this feeling of disconnect that we have with what ought to be in, in this world, that thing that makes you hide from other people, that things that cause you to not commit, that thing that causes you to be codependent so that you can try to get what you need from other people, that thing that causes you to work too hard or be obsessed with your body. It's kind of a covert, a covert guilt, a covert shame that we walk with. And what the writer of the Hebrews is saying is this old system did nothing to renew the heart. We need new hearts. We're in need of a better sacrifice. Now, that's the long point, trust me. What the writer of the Hebrews is going to say is, there's power in what Jesus has done. The new sacrifice is way stronger. Now, this is thunderous language. This is triumphant language. Look at what he says. But when Christ came as a high priest, he's a high priest member, according to Melchizedek, chapter 7, of the good things that are now already here, He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not the one made with human hands. He did not enter by the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place, underline it, once for all by his own blood. Jesus did not go into a building and he did not offer the blood of a goat or a bull. He went into the holy of holies, the heavenly tabernacle, and there offers his own blood that once for all Redemption may be granted. Here's what redemption means. The Greek, the Greek word for redemption means to be loosed out, to be set free, to have your chains broken. We live in this broken world and it infects our broken individual hearts. And what Jesus has done, the author is saying, is once for all, you can be set free. Free. He's thundering away. Look at the next verse. The blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who were ceremonially unclean. Sure, it sanctified them so that they were outward clean, but underline it. How much more? This is a lesser to the greater argument. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself a blemish to God, and this is profound, cleanse our consciences. Cleanse our consciences. What is the goat for Yahweh cleansing in the Old Covenant? It's cleansing a building so that the sacred space there can be cleansed so God can come and dwell there. What is cleansed in this New Covenant? Not a building, but you. You. Your heart remade. That guilt and shame washed clean so that God can come and dwell where? With you. Think about the prof- how profound this is. If you wanted to go and access the divine in the old covenant, you had to travel. You had to get in a plane, they didn't have planes then, and fly to Jerusalem and go to the tabernacle or go to the temple and there be in the presence of God. What the Christian idea is is so radically different. It's so shocking. If you want to see God, if you want access to God, In the new covenant, guess where? Guess where you see him? You. He's cleansed you. You are now the sacred space. Look at the so that. So that we might go serve him. That's that's temple temple and priest language. Serving the living God, serving before him. That you and I now have lives that are like walking temples. We are the mobile temple now. Think of the implications of that for your life. The decisions you make today, what you do with yourself today, what you do with your body today, how you treat people today, that's unbelievable. The tabernacling presence of God can now come and dwell with you if you are in Christ. Jesus has purchased for you redemption, and now he unlocks for you access 
for the divine. He, he concludes the chapter with these amazing statements. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. And then he concludes, but he has appeared, Jesus, underline it again, once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Here's the picture. Just as the goat for Azazel, was, the scapegoat, was driven out into the wilderness, out there where sin and death reign. Out there where people don't come back. Sin and death are undefeated out there. And this goat was driven out there year after year after year. All those goats' bones are out there wasting away. And Jesus was sacrificed outside the camp. He went out there where sin and death reign, where no one comes back, and he came back. Think of the implication. I know this is the theological, but think of the implication. In the death and resurrection of Jesus, what the author of Hebrews is saying is sin and death have lost. He went out there where they reign and crushed them there. When he came back uh, by the sacrifice of himself, that means once for all, that power has been defeated. Wow. The power of this sacrifice, our two great problems, are once for all met. And now God can tabernacle with all those who are brought into Christ. This is weird, wild stuff here. Now look at the third point, the result of it. Man, I wanna talk a lot, but we gotta take communion. Look at the result of it. It was one verse. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. A mediator is one who goes between two parties that are at odds. He's the mediator of a new covenant. The new covenant is this, the thing the prophets long for. When their hearts of Israel would be restored, the nations would come streaming in and experience the blessing of Yahweh, that the Garden of Eden would be restored to us, that we would have access to God, that he would be our God, and we would be his people, and we would know him. And what the author is saying is that new covenant has been unlocked and unleashed into the world. Inheritance, we receive his inheritance, that's family language. You're now brought into this covenant people of God, given access to God, enabled to go take his justice, his beauty, his goodness out into the rest of the world. That's your calling. This is not about just getting out of hell and going to heaven. This is about a whole new way to live, set free, experiencing access to God. No shame, no guilt, no hiding, being truly known and yet truly accepted by God and by people. A radically new community, a new people where the Spirit of God indwells us and we take God's goodness into the world. Pretty cool, isn't it? Now, here's how we, uh, here's how we close. Remember Les Mis? You've read the book. I'm assuming most of your contact with this has been through the musical and maybe the Hugh Jackman one recently. If you remember the, uh, the story, um, it begins thunderously, right? Like it comes in, and uh, the musical especially, it comes in, and you're introduced by this huge song, look down, look down, don't even lift your eyes. And they pinpoint, they zero in on Jean Valjean. He's a prisoner, he's guilty, he's dirty, he has a number, not a name, 24601. His head is down, and his life is a wreck. I mean, he's a mess. He gets his parole, and then as he's on the run, just trying to figure out what life looks like now, he's got all this guilt, all this shame, all this baggage haunting him, and he ends up being taken in by a priest at a monastery. Do you remember the story? In the middle of the night, his, his baggage kind of catches up with him, and he decides the best thing for me to do is to steal the silver, the silverware, and run. I can't, I'm out, I can't do this. He maintains his head is down, he's dirty, he's filthy. He doesn't even seem human. He gets caught, he gets brought in, and they go to the priest, they say, this man stole your silverware. Condemn him, he stole from you. And you remember what the priest does? Remember this in the story? If you haven't seen it, I'm giving away the first eight minutes. Okay, the priest goes, he didn't steal it, I gave it to him. Oh, and he says, friend, you forgot the best part. He says, here's the really expensive all silver candlesticks. Here, you forgot the best part. Take the candlesticks as well. If you remember in the story, Jean Valjean, his total, his face drastically changes. 
Tears fill his eyes. He's never tasted anything like this. But it doesn't stop there. If you remember the story, the rest of that story is a contrast in Jean Valjean experiencing this new life. He's tasted grace. And as a result, man, everything about his life is different. He brings benevolence and goodness out into a broken and dark world. He's the light in this messy world. Everything's changed. No longer looked down, but he's been called friend. He's been accepted by the priest, and now he's tasted grace. He's never the same. He's got a whole new way to live. That's what this idea of the new covenant is about. Remember his quote? He says, my soul belongs to God I know. I made that bargain long ago. I gave my hope. He gave, he gave me hope when hope was gone. He gave me strength to journey on. Here's my question for you. To whom or to what does your soul belong? Have you tasted this grace? Does it belong to God? You say, he's given me strength to journey on. Or is it your reputation? Is it... Uh, your 401k? Is it getting married or your success of your kids? What do you give your devotion, your time, your talent, your treasure to? Jean Valjean has tasted something and he can't go back. And for the Hebrew audience to taste this new covenant, the better sacrifice, they can't go back to the old. It's a whole new way to live, bringing God's goodness empowered by his spirit into the world. We've got the candlesticks. We've, we've tasted it, if you're in Christ. So here's how we close. We're gonna sing now, and I want, I want you to do this. Uh, we're gonna celebrate Jesus' sacrifice that unlocks the new covenant. And we're gonna celebrate it the way Jesus asked us to, by taking communion. If you're a Jesus follower in the room, uh, let me ask you, go ahead and take that out. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take, go ahead and uh, lift the top and take the bread out. And I'm gonna pray in a minute as we sing this, these, this, these next couple songs. Uh, I'm gonna come up in a minute. We'll take communion together. As we sing, I want you to break the bread. And I just want you to hold the bread and the juice in your hands. And I'll come up and we'll take communion together in a minute. His body broken for us. His blood poured out for us. The better sacrifice that unlocks the new covenant that changes everything. We're gonna sing about it. We're gonna celebrate it together. And we'll take communion together. Let's pray. Lord, it's strange argument from the author of the Hebrews, rooted in lots of Old Testament, but pointing to Jesus, the better sacrifice, the one who has created a new people that can be where you are our God and we are your people, where we know you and walk with you, sacred space, tabernacle, now our cleared and cleansed consciences as you've washed us clean and you unlock for us the ability to now bring that out into the world in the power and name of Jesus. Man, we center all that now on you, Jesus. Your body that was broken and your blood poured out for us. We celebrate you. Would you stand? Let's sing together.
once for all, his body was broken for us for the forgiveness of sin. Church, take and eat. And once for all, his blood poured out, hear it, for the new covenant, for the forgiveness of sin. It's the blood of the new covenant enacted and unlocked for you and for me and his blood once for all. Church, take and drink. because we have a Savior who has given his life for us, who has raised from the grave, and we can celebrate that this morning and every day this week as we're reminded of the grace from the Father that we have in Jesus. And so, church, may we cling to that. Father, we love you. Fellowship, so thankful for you. Remember that this week as we, as we leave these doors and we go out in our lives of worship. Remember the sacrifice of the Son. 
May that spur on how we live our lives. Uh, we have prayer. Our prayer room is to your right through those doors. If you'd like to meet and to pray. If not, we'll see you next week. Have a great week of worship, everyone.